You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. I can't imagine this peacock overthrowing room. Oh, just you wait. Hold my drink. It's the third riot in the streets this week, and it's only Tuesday. You're on your way to the Via Sacra when you see it, a royal of people hard by the forum on the bleeding edge of violence. You can't tell which ones support the new consul and which ones oppose him, but you breathe in the viciousness. A naked blade flashes in someone's hand. One of them snatches up a tile that's fallen from the roof. Your guards suggest changing your route, and you tell them no. You change your route for no one. This is your city. The rich man and the great man are waiting for you in the villa. The rich man has a sour face like somebody pissed in his Falernian. It's well known that in the time of the dictator, he killed a man in the prescriptions just to get his property. Now he is the richest man in Rome and money flows through his open hands. He'll lend you enough to lift the debts that break your back. But when it's time to repay him, you'd best be ready. The great man has an open face. A nice face, the kind people trust implicitly, but his business is war. He's a noted commander, the best of our time, and he walks around like he's posing for a sculpture, with his hair flowing heroically back from the prow of his forehead. He's got soldiers, enough to bully the Senate into doing whatever you want. But when the time comes to repay him, you'd best be ready. The three of you get down to terms. The great man and the rich man despise each other, but it's clear what brought them both to the table. They both believe they will own you. The rich man with his money and the great man with his might. They both think they'll have you in their pocket after this. What they don't know is that the people belong to you. You've been winning their love for years with lavish feasts and festivals, with golden bombs to the city's bleeding heart. The rich man might own half the city and the great man half the army, but you walked through a murderous mob this morning and emerged without a hair out of place. You promise them everything. With money in your palm and soldiers at your back, you will give them the world. And when the time comes to repay you, they'd best be ready. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McBenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last 
last episode, we took you through the early years of Julius Caesar's life when he refused the evil dictator Sulla's order to divorce his wife, got kidnapped by pirates, and built a reputation as a public prosecutor, deliberately going after powerful governors on charges of corruption. Go listen to that episode. If you haven't first, it's very entertaining. At the end of that episode, Caesar had a fateful run-in with a statue of Alexander the Great, where he realized he'd done nothing with his life by the age of 30. And I mean, I realize that all the time, Caesar, but let me tell you something. When you get over that hill of 30, life still exists. You still have things to do. You're still a valid individual. You are still a person contributing to society. I mean, get over your quarter-life crisis and let's see what the rest of your life has in store, okay? Like, just wait till you turn 35, buddy. That's all. Oh, God. 30 35 was fine. 36. So in this episode, Caesar has just given up his safe, boring quaestor position and rushed back to Rome to start kicking things up a notch. And he did that by going into debt. In 65 BC, Caesar had come back to Rome. He was elected to the position of Aedile, an office responsible for maintaining public buildings and throwing festivals. Caesar spent money like water. He threw lavish public feasts and gladiatorial games and put his own money into prominent public works projects. Here's how Plutarch put it, quote, He was unsparing in his outlays of money and was thought to be purchasing a transient and short-lived fame at a great price, though in reality he was buying things of the highest value at a small price. We are told, accordingly, that before he entered upon any public office, he was 1,300 talents in debt, Talents of gold or silver. Big difference, Plutarch. Being appointed curator of the Appian Way, Caesar expended upon it vast sums of his own money. And again, during his aedileship, he furnished 320 pairs of gladiators. It's a lot of gladiators. And by lavish provision besides for theatrical performances, processions, and public banquets, he washed away all memory of the ambitious efforts of his predecessors in the office. By these means, he put the people in such a humor that every man of them was seeking out new offices and new honors with which to requite him. And that is really what he was buying here. Spending money made people love Caesar. Surprise, surprise. They loved him. They did. He was elected to position after position, keeping well ahead of his creditors. Caesar also married again, this time to Pompeia, the granddaughter of Sulla. But they didn't stay married for very long. In 63 BC, at the age of 37, Caesar was elected Pontifex Maximus, the head priest of the state religion, an extremely prestigious position that came with a cushy house right in the center of town. After he won, his wife Pompeia hosted the festival of the Bona Dea, a chastity and fertility goddess. And I really love this detail. It makes me think of there's sort of a meme going around about Persephone. And it says, don't worry about your contradictions because Persephone is both a floral maiden and the goddess of death. Yeah, the Bonadea was a chastity and fertility goddess. It's a little confusing to me. It's a little confusing, but it's very Roman. Remember Saturn? He's both the god of the harvest and also someone who ate his own babies and was a refugee. Those things aren't really contradictory. They're just complex. Anyway, only women were allowed to attend this festival, but a young male aristocrat snuck in dressed as a woman, allegedly to seduce Pompeia. Even though there is no evidence that he and Pompeia were ever actually involved, Caesar divorced Pompeia, saying that the wife of Caesar had to be above all suspicion. That's a far cry from his refusal to divorce Cornelia, and it also was deeply hypocritical, because Caesar was not known for letting the fact that he was married stand in the way of sleeping with whoever the hell he wanted to sleep with. As an aristocratic Roman man, Caesar had a lot of options when it came to his affairs. There were a whole class of courtesans, independent and very expensive sex workers who often chose their own lovers from among the upper classes. Caesar was definitely charismatic and rich, or at least he spent 
like he was rich enough to attract one of these. There are also plenty of brothels in Rome, from down market to very classy, that catered to every kind of taste. But Caesar went after one group of women who were off-limits, the wives of his senatorial colleagues. Incidentally, except for Nicomedes, Caesar wasn't known for having high-profile affairs with men, but he was known for having high-profile affairs with women. Ancient Rome was full of highly educated, wealthy, privileged, and very bored women. Their lives were severely restricted by the social mores of the times. Officially, women weren't supposed to be involved in politics at all. They were banned from entering the forum, and they weren't allowed to vote. According to Lucius Valerius Flaccus, a tribune from 195 BC, quote, no offices, no priesthoods, no triumphs, no spoils of war, elegance, adornment, finery. These are a woman's insignia. These are what our forefathers called the woman's world, quote. And I mean, I just want to like find all of the ducks feminine history to punch him. Right. Could we get some ducks feminists to kick this guy in the head? <laughs> Agrippina, Fulvia. Agrippina the Elder. Get all the ducks feminine to like throw rotten vegetables at this guy until he shuts up. Senators' wives were frequently left alone for months or years while their husbands were at war. They were vital, young, smart, energetic and just as ruthlessly ambitious as their husbands. Some of them became experts at getting around the social rules that bound them. They were often relentless in maneuvering behind the scenes to promote the careers of the men in their families, thus raising their own status. The Roman historian Sallust was about 14 years younger than Caesar, from the same aristocratic class and the oldest known Roman historian whose works we still have. He gives us a very clear description of what these women were like. Quote, now among these women was Sempronia, who had often committed many crimes of masculine daring, because to be daring meant to be masculine. You couldn't be feminine and daring. Oh, no, never. In birth and beauty, in her husband and also children, she was abundantly favored by fortune, well-read in the literature of Greece and Rome, able to play the lyre and dance more skillfully than an honest woman need, whatever that means. Oh, it was all about the hips. The hips don't lie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you clarified that for us. Um, And having many other accomplishments which ministered to voluptuousness, which I guess means that she had a great rack. It's having great curves. She had dangerous curves, excellent dancer, and she had a bang in mind. That's probably what the most scary thing was for these men. But there was nothing which she held so cheap as modesty and chastity. So she was also the boss of herself, which is terrible because we're in ancient Rome. And she knew how to show off her curves. Oh my God. You could not easily say whether she was less sparing of her money or her honor. Her desires were so ardent that she sought men more often than she was sought by them. She had often broken her word, repudiated her debts, been privy to murder, poverty and extravagance combined had driven her headlong. Nevertheless, she was a woman of no mean endowments. She could write verses, bandy jests, and use language which was modest or tender or wanton. In fine, she possessed a high degree of wit and of charm. Here we have... A very clear description of Caesar's type. Yeah, and let's be honest, Jenny, she was kind of badass, except the murder thing. Yeah, we don't condone murder, but other than that, she sounds like a lot of fun. She does. She sounds like <laughs> she sounds like you or me. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Caesar's lovers were wives of some of the most powerful, highly placed men in Rome. They were all extremely influential in their own right. One of these late Republic movers and shakers was Servilia, a patrician from a very old and respected family. And of all the Roman women Caesar had affairs with, Servilia was the one that stuck. Caesar and Servilia had an affair lasting 20 years. They first hooked up around 64 BC, while he was still married to Pompeia. It was one of those relationships that ebbed and flowed, but it was very intense. 
Caesar and Servilia were the same kind of animal, political, ambitious, and not bound by monogamy. Servilia also had a husband who was definitely not Caesar. Suetonius tells us that Caesar loved Servilia beyond all others. One time, Caesar wooed her with a black pearl worth about six million in today's money. Good pick, Caesar. Like, black pearls? Amazing. Caesar also acquired a very valuable property that he sold to Servilia for a rock-bottom price. Allegedly, Servilia also let Caesar sleep with her youngest daughter as part of this deal, which I have so many questions. It's one of those rumors that are alluded to in the sources. It's like Agrippina sleeping with Nero. In litters! In the litter. (laughs) It's like kind of a salacious rumor that there probably was no grounding in this, but it was making the rounds. Some more modern historians speculate as to why Caesar would take the risk of sleeping with all these married women because being accused of adultery could ruin a man's political career, not to mention it was a great way to make a whole slew of undying political enemies. But also, in a way, it makes total sense. I don't think it was the thrill of the illicit or the only place Caesar could get sex. The women were the back channel. We've been talking about this a lot. Caesar was using his sexuality to gain influence with powerful political fixers who worked behind the scenes because he had a magic D. We have to talk about the magic D. Do we have to talk about the magic D? Yes, we do. You see the magic D pop up when you get into Sejanus and Lepidus. We've talked about men who use their sexuality for power and influence in some of our other episodes and it's sort of this toxic masculinity cliche that's associated with women a lot of the time, you know, sleeping your way to the top. But a lot of men in ancient Rome slept their way to the top. When you've got people who have information and power and influence who are not given a voice and are denied the ability to impact change in a public way, then you will always have a back channel. Right. And the back channel in ancient Rome isn't written about as much in the ancient sources. It's still a little bit shadowy, but you do get intriguing flashes of it and you can see Caesar working the back channel here. Yeah, and I think it's really important to remember that Caesar at this point in time is making a name for himself, but he's still the nephew of Marius. He's got a lot of work to do to repair that reputation and to become the guy that we're going to see in future episodes. You see him being absolutely ruthless because he's divorcing his wife at a breath of scandal, but he's also courting scandal himself and he's taking that risk because it directly benefits him. Pompeia's scandal didn't benefit him, so he was just like, she has to go. Exactly. And it's possible she had other ambitions. She was a person who had wants and needs and Caesar, let's be honest, was all about Caesar. Yeah, Caesar was all about Caesar and he needed a wife who was all about Caesar. So that may have been the reason, the real reason why he divorced her. But this is all speculation. Who knows? It's all speculation. We don't know the answer. So don't quote us. If you're writing a history paper using us as a resource, why? Why would you do that? (laughs) Why, Slenderman, why? (laughs) Don't use us as a resource for your thesis in history. It's like not a good idea. Clearly don't use us. We're here for your infotainment. (laughs) Moving on. The year 63 B.C was big for Caesar. He was 37 years old at this point. He was winning the love of the people, spending money like water, wearing his belt loose and his tunic fringed and cultivating his back channel. If you know what I mean. And then the Catiline conspiracy happened. I'm Helena Bonham Carter and for BBC Radio 4 this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
Catalan was, in many ways, basically an off-brand Caesar. Like Jen's off-brand Cheetos. No, guys, I'm going to tell you this. Just like off-brand Caesars, off-brand Cheetos are not things that you want to have. Don't have the off-brand Caesar. Have the real Caesar or no Caesar at all. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) But that's a hill we're dying on right now. Exactly. (laughs) Here are all the similarities between Caesar and off-brand Caesar. One, Catiline was from a minor family on the outskirts of power. Two, he positioned himself as a populist. Three, he was known for his promiscuity with both men and women. And four, he spent vast sums of money to win over the populace and was deeply in debt. Catiline had a lot of violent rumors swirling about him, like that he'd killed his own teenage son because his new wife didn't like the son. During the Sully years, he'd apparently marched through the streets, waving the head of his own brother-in-law because that's the kind of guy he was. One interesting thing about this time period is that a lot of people who were in public office now had been involved in the Sulla prescriptions and probably had stories like that in their background as well. Oh, yeah. He took that head down to the Rasta and got himself his brother-in-law's property and everything else he wanted. Both Catiline and Caesar ran for Praetor around this time. They didn't run for the same Praetor position. There were multiple ones open. Caesar won his election and Catiline lost his. And you have to ask yourself, if Caesar had lost his election and his creditors had descended on him, would he have ended up like Catiline? Maybe. Maybe. In some ways, winning elections in Rome is like playing musical chairs. If the music stopped and you were out, your creditors would descend on you like a flock of hungry sharks ready to gouge out your eyeballs with their shark teeth. Terrifying. The music stopped for Catiline, and he did something drastic. He plotted to take over the world. There are a lot of moving pieces to the Catiline conspiracy, which I'm not going to get into because it's kind of beyond the purview of this episode. Suffice it to say that, like Caesar, Catiline was very aware of the power of the female back channel. Salas reports that one part of Catiline's plan involved winning the support of the former expensive female courtesans who'd grown too old to practice their craft, but who still had bills to pay. And... So there's some issues with that. I feel like probably you could be a lot older than you would think and still be able to be a very successful courtesan. I mean, let's be honest. If you are making it in that world as a female courtesan, you could rack up quite a lot of wealth and you could do it for quite a long time. My sense of things is that there are sex workers practicing at all ages who do really well. And maybe Catiline was misunderstanding his audience here. Catiline had a hope that with the help of the aging court, he could, quote unquote, tempt the city slaves to his side and set fire to Rome and then either attach the woman's husbands to his cause or make away with them. <laughs> it's such a confusing plot. So he was going to have the, the courtesans seduce the slaves to come to his side or then he was going to kidnap them. I think it's just so confusing. He's going to get the courtesans to get the slaves on board, but he's not going to use the courtesans who sleep with the men of the aristocracy who could give him actual news. And then once he has got everyone to revolt, he's going to take the wives of the wealthy husbands and abscond with them. That makes no sense to me. Maybe this is why Catiline didn't do so well because his plot was really wacky. Exactly. It makes as much sense as a wacky collapsible boat. Right. And we've been there. (laughs) Catiline plotted to slaughter a bunch of senators and to take over the government, Sulla style. But it didn't work out. 
When the plot was discovered, Catalan fled the city and raised an army. He later died on the battlefield. Five of his supporters were arrested, and the Senate came down hard on these supporters. People were, in general, on a hair trigger about this whole taking over the government thing. Kings were the devil. They'd always been the devil. But right now, it was personal. Everyone remembered the heads in the forum and Sulla's crappy list. Everyone had PTSD from this. Not even the Sullen supporters wanted to go back to that time. Nobody was in the mood to show these people any mercy or even any due process. And this is where Cicero comes into our story. Cicero, who ruined junior high for Jen. (laughs) He really did. I took Latin from seventh grade until 11th grade. And I did eight years of Latin in seven or six. Not because I was good at Latin, but because as you went up in levels. Less and less people took it, so they just combined the classes. So eventually I was in an AP Latin class, and I was like, I am definitely a solid B to C student. I don't know what I'm doing in this class. Maybe you're giving yourself not enough credit. No, I'm giving myself exactly the amount of credit I deserve. (laughs) So anyway, Cicero, who ruined my junior high because I had to translate so many of his speeches, was an up-and-coming politician and about six years older than Caesar. And whereas oratory was just one tool in the Caesar toolbox, Cicero was a specialist. Oratory was his superpower. It's said that his skills as a Latin prose stylist had a profound effect not just on the Latin language itself, but on European languages up until the 1800s, as writers in English, French, German, and other languages held him up as a standard and tortured children in junior high school and high school for generations to come. Jen has PTSD from junior high, like so many of us, but most of us don't have Cicero-related PTSD. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so here are some fun facts about Cicero. His name meant chickpea. Plutarch tells us that this was because of an ancestor of his had a cleft in his nose, making it look like a little chickpea. But it also may have been that Cicero's family wealth came from prosperous chickpea farming. I bet they make good hummus. You know what? You said in one of our past episodes about Cicero that he had an ancestral chickpea farm, but it sounded like you said an incestuous chickpea farm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what the chickpeas got up to, but, you know, it's ancient Rome. Wouldn't surprise me. Really kinky chickpeas on this chickpea farm. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Anyway, interestingly, having a name like chickpea, Wasn't that weird? Other renowned names had roots in agricultural crops. For instance, Piso meant pea, and Fabius means beans, and Lentilus meant lentil. There were a lot of people with names that harken back to an agricultural root of some kind. So Plutarch tells us that when Cicero entered politics, friends suggested he change his name, but he doubled down, declaring he'd elevate the name Cicero far above the names of other politicians like Scarus, a famous politician from the previous generation whose name meant, I love this so much, swollen ankled. (laughs) So that was the quality that made him stand out was his ankles. But wait, this one's even better. And Catullus, a commander in the First Punic War, whose name meant Poppy! (laughs) Can you imagine me, your city being sacked by Poppy? (laughs) Oh, we're being attacked by the puppy cuddles. (laughs) I mean, I wish it was actual puppies, because that would be the cutest ever sacking, but it was not like that. Listen to our first two episodes. It was not like that. Right. Sackings were not cute, but maybe there were some sackings in the Punic War we didn't cover that involved a lot of puppies, and it would have been adorable. Puppy cuddles! (laughs) So, Cicero also served as a lawyer early in his career. His first case was a doozy, defending someone against patricide, which was a really serious crime in ancient Rome. They really did not like it when you killed your dad. 
As part of his defense, he accused other prominent people of the murder, people who were close friends with Sulla, which was a baller move. He won his case, too, but he had to skip town afterwards. Cicero was a champion of the traditional republic and a foil for Caesar. Where Caesar was a radical populist, Cicero grounded his philosophy in ancient Roman values. Caesar bucked the rules at every opportunity. Cicero followed them to the letter. The two worked closely together and were often at odds, but they were also sometimes friends or frenemies. I bet they were good frenemies. They were frenemies. Yeah. According to Plutarch, Cicero once said of Caesar that, quote, a tyrannical purpose was evident in most of Caesar's political plans and projects. On the other hand, he said, when I look at his exquisitely arranged hair and see him scratching his head with one finger, I find it impossible to believe that this man could ever conceive of so great a crime as to overthrow the Roman constitution, end quote. I really love that quote because it's such a fun human detail. This is somebody who knew Caesar, was very close friends with Caesar, and he knew him as a human being. Yeah, and I love the idea that he's like his meticulously put together appearance, scratching his head with one finger. Like, I love that he's like, I look at this guy and he's so put together. Everything is very made up for his public image. He's not the kind of guy who would overthrow Rome. And here he is behaving like kind of a doofus. And I can't, I can't imagine him overthrowing Rome. I can't imagine this peacock overthrowing Rome. Oh, just you wait. Hold my drink. <laughs> Hold my drink, says Julius fucking Caesar. Exactly. So at this moment, in the Catiline conspiracy, Cicero happened to be serving as consul, the highest position in the land. And he was out for blood. Rule breaking really ground Cicero's gears. This time, enough to break the rules himself. Right, because this particular rule breaking involved overthrowing the state and installing the devil. Yeah, but also, as we talked about in our Saturnalia episode, Catiline planned this whole conspiracy to run over Saturnalia. And I'm just going to say, if you mess with my Saturnalia, then I will be out for blood. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to do something like this during Saturnalia, which we talk about in that episode, because the rules were relaxed and you could do things and get away with things and go places that you couldn't necessarily do and get away with during normal times. Well, yeah, totally. But also, it's my Saturnalia. So one time a year, I get to let Saturn loose and party. Sometimes when you let Saturn loose, he tries to overthrow your government. You just have to accept that as part of the holiday. I mean, it is true. Cicero wanted the conspirators executed right away without even a trial. And it wasn't supposed to work like that. That wasn't Roman justice. Each of the accused was supposed to get a trial and a lawyer and a chance to appeal his case. Caesar was the one who called for mercy. Here's how it went down, according to Plutarch. After the Catalan conspirators had been overwhelmingly convicted in the Senate and Cicero the consul asked each senator to give his opinion on the matter of their punishment, the rest, down to Caesar, urged that they be put to death. But Caesar rose in his place and delivered a long and studied speech against this. He pleaded that to put to death without legal trial men of high rank and brilliant lineage was not, in his opinion, traditional or just, except under extremist necessity, but that if they should be bound and kept in custody until the war against Catiline had been brought to a successful end, because remember, Catiline escaped and now is raising an army, the Senate could afterwards, in a time of peace and at their leisure, vote upon the case of each one of them. This opinion seemed so humane, and the speech in support of it made with such power, that not only those who rose to speak after Caesar sided with him, but many also of those who had preceded him took back the opinions which they had expressed and went over to his. Cicero thought about it. In fact, he agonized over it all night. That night, his wife, Terentia, was performing the festival of the Bona Dea in his house with a group of Vestal virgins. We come back to the festival of the Bona Dea. <laughs> Once again, the Bona Dea fucks shit up. 
<laughs> a fire that was believed to be out suddenly blazed forth, and the Vestals interpreted it as a sign that the conspirators should indeed be put to death immediately. Terentia was the one who carried the news to Cicero. He had them put to death the next day without due process. I included this anecdote because it's a great example of how the back channel could work. Cicero's wife, Terentia, was heavily involved in politics and frequently influenced her husband this way. This time, her agenda was death penalty. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200 talents of gold or silver, but probably silver because that would be weird if it was gold. It would be a lot of money if it was gold. So women sometimes influence the men around them directly through actual conversations, but the toxic masculinity in ancient Rome was rank. And if you haven't figured that out by now, we are not doing our jobs. Direct influence wasn't always a winning strategy because of all that toxic masculinity. And you do see this when we talked about Agrippina and other powerful women. And a lot of the time when they went directly headlong against male powers of the patriarchy, bad things happened to them. Like they got undermined, they got exiled, they got murdered. They got exiled and then beaten so badly they lost an eye. That was Agrippina the Elder, and we talk about that in Germanicus the Manicus. But it it just shows you that it was a risk sometimes trying to influence men directly. However, these men were often superstitious, and the women understood how religion affected politics, the public, and the individual psyches of the men they wanted to persuade. A woman who was involved in religion had a very useful tool in her back pocket for influencing superstitious men. And we saw Caesar's mom, Aurelia, use this strategy to save her son's life with Sulla. Sometimes working the back channel required a delicate touch, borrowing the authority of the gods to influence these really superstitious men. And you see Terentia doing that here. So despite Caesar's best efforts, he was outmaneuvered by Terentia and the Catiline conspirators were immediately sent to the Mamertine prison to be executed. And I just have to go on a teensy little tangent about the Mamertine prison. It was just a hole in the ground that had originally been a cistern for a spring. It was a horrible pit. Prisoners were lowered into the black pit and then strangled to death. All five of these co-conspirators died this way without any due process. Even if all the accused were guilty, it was a great miscarriage of justice. Can I ask you a question about this Mamertine prison? Why lower them into a pit in the ground if you're only going to strangle them? And then how did they strangle them? I think it was a, a really nasty garroting. So did they then bring them up to strangle them? No, no. They lowered them down into the horrible pit and strangled them. But when did the strangling happen? Was somebody down there already to strangle them? I'm assuming there was someone down there. There's a head strangler. <laughs> there was a head strangler down in the memory. This is literally just for me. I can't get my brain around it. You know, and you're just like, but who is doing the strangling? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how do you get into there to strangle? Like, <laughs> I have so many questions. Like, was there a head strangler? <laughs> was he already down there? There was a rope ladder. There's a lot we don't know. Anyway, Caesar paid a price for his calls for mercy. Cato, the tribune of the plebs, in many ways another foil for Caesar, a severe moralist who avoided all forms of vice, tried to implicate him in the conspiracy. Cicero's bodyguards even threatened Caesar's life. Suddenly, Caesar was in a very precarious position. He had to defend himself physically and defend against the accusations of conspiracy at the same time after just seeing five men led off to be strangled for the same charge with the zero due process, but he'd spent a fortune winning the love of the public, and now it paid off. An angry mob surrounded the building, demanding that Caesar be released. The mob was so violent that Cato not only let Caesar go, but talked the Senate into granting the rioters an expensive monthly allowance of grain just to calm them down. So that was Caesar's praetorship. It was an eventful year. 
When the praetorship ended in 62 BC, Caesar landed a plum position, governor of ulterior Spain, where he'd had his fateful quarter-life crisis conversation with the statue of Alexander the Great. He'd had his life-changing quarter-life crisis, mountain-to-move moment. He set himself on course. Right. There was a problem with this new job, though. There was a small window of time between when his praetorship ended and his governorship began when Caesar was a private citizen. And that meant his creditors were going to descend on him like vultures on a steaming carcass. And this is where Crassus comes into the story. Here are some fun facts about Crassus. Crassus was basically the very wealthy daddy shark of ancient Rome. There were other rich people in Rome for sure, but Crassus owned most of them. By some estimates, his fortune in today's dollars would have been about 9 billion US dollars. Crassus was said to have made the start of his fortune by killing another wealthy man during Sulla's prescriptions. His victim's name was not originally on the list. Crassus added it himself, probably in his victim's blood. Yeah, Crassus was the ancient Roman version of a realist state magnate. He owned teams of slaves specially trained to flip houses. I am not actually kidding. His slaves included architects, builders, and even a brigade of firefighters because ancient Rome had no dedicated state-funded firefighters at this point. Here's how it would go down. Ancient Rome was seriously flammable. The neighborhoods were densely packed with narrow streets and extremely fire-friendly building materials. People cooked indoors with fire, used candles and lamps all the time, and there was no official fire brigade, like we said. The whole city was basically a fiery death trap. So Crassus would wait for a fire to start and then sweep in and buy buildings in the path of the fire before they burned. Then he'd call in his trusty firefighters. He'd stop the fire just to preserve Crassus's buildings. He'd send in his builders and architects to lovingly restore any damaged buildings, put all the modern fixtures in, give it, you know, those marble countertops and everything else you've been dreaming of. And then he'd turn around and sell these properties at a premium to wealthy buyers. You gotta wonder if he might have been setting those fires himself. I had that exact same thought. Totally. And then I'm guessing he bought the buildings that burned down at a rock bottom price and then just restored them. Right. Because when you have a fire bearing down on your house and you're about to lose everything you have, you're not going to quibble over pricing. Exactly. Crassus also had other ways of making money. He owned silver mines. He sold slaves, which is terrible. Crassus was a terrible person. In addition to being disturbingly rich, Crassus was a very effective general. He'd been the one to defeat Spartacus in the survey war and we're giving this its own episode but suffice it to say yeah we are <laughs> sorry i'm very excited about that episode you're gonna get a lot more crassus you didn't ask for more crassus but you're gonna get more crassus <laughs> you didn't ask for more crassus you don't think you need more crassus but you're getting more crassus <laughs> you're getting more crassus it's what we're serving up but anyway suffice it to say that crassus was an absolutely brutal general in ending that war ordering six thousand of spartacus's followers to be crucified along the appian way. Their throats were not cut first. And another fun detail about Crassus, Caesar was sleeping with his wife. Yeah, he was. Because <laughs> he is Julius fucking Caesar. Emphasis on the fucking there. It really works on all kinds of levels. So what Caesar did was basically consolidate his loans with the bank of Crassus before he was owned by a whole bunch of people who could gouge out his flesh but didn't. And now Daddy Crassus owned him. Yeah, like Sally Mae owns the rest of us. Yes. And Crassus was not doing this out of the goodness of his heart because... I think it should be blindingly obvious, Crassus did not do things out of the goodness of his heart, assuming he had one. He wanted Caesar's political help, specifically against a major political enemy. Jenny, what's a pirate's worst enemy? Um, Pompey? <laughs> Pompey shark. I mean, Pompey. 
Pompey shark. I think that's the first time we've actually done it somewhat in sync. I know. We're not capable of doing things in sync. Who was Pompey Shark, you asked? I am so glad you asked because now we're going to explain this to you. I mean, literally no one asked. I didn't even ask. <laughs> I'm still going to explain it to you, though. Um, if, if Caesar hadn't existed, Pompey Shark would have probably be known as the greatest military shark mind of his age. <laughs> he was six years older than Caesar, and at this point in history, he was the Republic's golden shark. I mean, I'm going to stop with the shark now. Yeah, I need you to start with the shark. At least for a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I might bring it back later. He was the Republic's golden boy. His father had also been a general fighting for Sulla during the Civil War. He was known as Strabo the Butcher. Nobody liked him. But people really, really did like Pompey. Here's how Plutarch describes him. Quote, he had a countenance which helped him in no small degree to win the favor of the people and which pleaded for him before he spoke. <laughs> yeah, I gotta take a minute for that. Why does it say it like that? We don't know. We didn't write it. I just have to. I'll be okay. Just give me a minute. For even his boyish loveliness had a gentle dignity about it. And in the prime and flower of his youthful beauty. Swoon. There was at once manifest the majesty and kingliness of his nature. His hair was inclined to lift itself slightly from his forehead. And this with a graceful contour of face about the eyes. Swoon. <laughs> produced a resemblance to the portrait statues of King Alexander. So yeah, if I was Caesar and I had my transcendent emotional breakdown in front of a statue of Alexander the Great and now Pompey looks like him, yeah, I'd be having a little bit of a freak out. It's not just that he looked like him, it's that people kept saying loudly and at length how much Pompey looked like Alexander the Great and reminded them of Alexander the Great and was probably the reincarnated avatar of Alexander the Great. Yeah, if I was Caesar, yeah, my anxiety and stress level and everything else would be through the roof. Ever since Pompey had started leading armies into battle in his early 20s, the comparisons to Alexander the Great started flying fast and furious. Pompey and Alexander the Great are virtually indistinguishable. Everyone keeps confusing them with each other in public. And Caesar's like, but what about me, guys? And they're like, sorry, no. Don't I look like Alexander the Great? Your hair is thinning a little bit. God damn it with the freaking hair! <laughs> <laughs> By this time, around 62 BC, Pompey had, one, cleaned up large-scale rebellions for Sulla in his early 20s, opening up a new route through the Alps along the way and prompting Sulla to add the Great to his name. So now he's Pompey the Great. Two, he took care of the Mediterranean's intractable pirate problem Problem within a few months without getting taken hostage, even resettling 20,000 pirates so they wouldn't turn to piracy again. Take that, Caesar. Thus earning the moniker Pompey Shark the Great. The Great. <laughs> and three, ended the war with Mithridates, which had been going on and off and on and off and on and off for 25 years and had broken other very capable Roman commanders. That's why he's Pompey Shark the Great. More fun facts about Pompey. He was often depicted with his hair blowing back in the wind. If you see a bust of Pompey, it's got this widow's peak right in the front of his forehead, which Caesar was blindingly jealous of because he was thinning a little bit on top. And I think that this widow's peak is supposed to represent Pompey standing in a wind tunnel or on the prow of a ship or something. His father, Stray... Strabo, Strabo the Butcher. I know, I know, I know. It's just ridiculous. That's what his name was. People called him that. I know. 
His father, Strabo the Butcher, was almost killed by his own troops one time. Pompey, then a teenager, threw himself at their feet, weeping and demanding that they trample on him to get to his dad. It worked. Strabo died a week later, struck by lightning during a siege, which, I mean, so much better, Caesar, than your dad dying putting on his shoes. Going out by lightning or putting on your shoes. Well, it just goes to show that nobody liked Strabo the Butcher, including the gods. But at least it was a dramatic exit. Exactly. (laughs) Pompey was one of those people Sulla ordered to divorce his existing wife and marry someone else. Unlike Caesar, Pompey went along with this. But his new wife, Sulla's stepdaughter, died in childbirth basically five minutes after they were married. She was pregnant with her former husband's child. Crassus did the bulk of the work winning the Third Servile War against Spartacus, but Pompey showed up late in the game and mopped up some fleeing fugitives. Then he went went back to Rome and claimed the credit for winning the entire war. And this might be the root of why Crassus and Pompey hated each other. And to be honest, I would not be cool with that Pompey. That is not something that would make me think you're the great. It would be like, yeah, Pompey the late. Pompey the little shit. Crassus thought Pompey was a little shit. Well, you can't blame him there. I mean, he did all that work and all that expense to like sort out Spartacus's rebellion. And then Pompey's like, I'm going to round up these harmless people fleeing who may or may not even be part of the rebellion and say, I did all the work and I'm going to take all the credit. Triumph me! That's <laughs> <laughs> probably how it went down. In 67 BC, when the Senate assigned Pompey to go take care of the Mediterranean's pirate problem, they gave him control over the entire Mediterranean plus dominion over land 50 miles inland. He also got 500 ships and the power to take as much money from the treasury as he wanted. That was how big a problem the pirates were. Putting this much power in a single general's hands made some senators twitchy, so much so that an opposing faction tried to kill him in the Senate House. Pompey had to strenuously object to the command and then pretend to accept it reluctantly, basically to save his own life. Caesar was one of the few who supported him. And Caesar was right to support Pompey because Pompey pretty much cleared out the pirate problem in the Mediterranean in like 40 days or something. Um, thing is, <laughs> Caesar was also sleeping with Pompey's wife. Because <laughs> Caesar had the magic D. <laughs> because we did tell you it was Julius fucking Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> Crassus despised each other. Between 70 and 69 BC, they served together as consuls and argued constantly about every single thing and got nothing done. And again, that sounds so familiar. Could you imagine if you and I were consuls together, Jen? (laughs) Oh, it would be awful. There's no way you and I could rule anything. We can't even rule this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I actually think we're doing a pretty good job ruling this podcast. I think we'd do awesome. We would probably need some therapy to make sure that, like, we didn't, like, ruin our friendship over it, but... I mean, all we'd have to do is accept the fact that I'm the boss, and then we'd do awesome. Oh, you're the boss, and I'm the dog's body. I get how it is. (laughs) What's a dog's body? Dog's body is a very British phrase, I guess. It just means someone who does all the legwork, all the hard lifting, and you get to get the credit and be the commander. I'm the idea person. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) That's how our consulship would go. (laughs) Yeah, you see, Pompey, it would not go well for you, because I think you know where I'm going. I'm not Crassus. I'm Julius Caesar. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Yeah, so Caesar consolidated his student loans at the Bank of Crassus, pledged his future support against Pompey, and then immediately skipped town, because that's what you do. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here and it's skipping town. When he got to Hispania Ulterior, he looked around and went, shit, 
this place is full of bandits. And you see, that was the good news because if there weren't bandits there already, Caesar would have had to manufacture some. Caesar had made his career prosecuting corrupt governors for using their provinces as their personal ATM machines. But now he was in their position. The tables had turned and he had just as much debt as they did, if not more. Instead of cashing in on his governorship, though, he went after a much more socially acceptable way of making money, at least to the ancient Romans. He turned his attention to this bandit problem, quote unquote. Caesar immediately set about increasing the local army and then marched it into the hills of Iberia, nimbly avoiding ambush and defeating stronghold after stronghold. And if this looks like a magnanimous thing to do to protect the populace, think again. What Caesar may have been doing was using this whole bandit excuse as a pretext to raid local non-Roman communities and take their loot, an alternative to plundering his own province. Suetonius even tells us that he let his armies sack towns even when they surrendered peacefully. But this campaign also gave his troops plenty of opportunity to plunder, and they loved this so much they declared him imperator. They loved plundering! And we've talked about plundering before in How to Survive a Siege and stuff, and it is not Okay. When an invading army attacked a city, there would be sexual assault on a wide scale. There would be murder on a wide scale. There would be taking people as slaves. And there would be a lot of theft and taking everybody's livelihood. It was a devastating thing to happen to a community. Being declared emperor was a big thing for Caesar because it qualified him to ask the Senate for a triumph. And as we all know, all any man wants in the ancient world is a triumph. A military parade where it gets to go through the street and everyone throws the ancient world ticker tape at them and makes them feel like they've done a great job. We've talked about triumphs in the past. This was a self-aggrandizing parade that generals got to throw when they had a really important victory. We haven't gone into it in detail, but now it's kind of relevant to this story. The triumph was the absolute highest honor to which a general of Rome could possibly aspire. And triumphs were rare. A lot of really accomplished generals lived their whole lives without being granted one. Only the Senate could grant a triumph. You had to apply, and you only qualified once you'd won a spectacular victory against a foreign enemy and your troops had declared you... Imperator! You are Imperator! And then you got to say, triumph me, please! One triumph, table one. I'm turning in my (laughs) triumph ticket. to the Senate. (laughs) I'm turning in my triumph paperwork. (laughs) You'll see everything is in line. If you are lucky enough to be granted a triumph, it would most likely be a -a once-in-a-lifetime honor, and here's how it would go down. At the first light of day, you'd gather with your army in the field of Mars. This is outside the ceremonial boundary of the city. Generals with an army were not allowed to cross this boundary until their triumph, so as not to trigger fears about Sulla-style takeovers, because that was very triggering. But as the conquering general, you got to aggrandize yourself in ways not normal allowed, for instance, by painting your face red and wearing a laurel crown and the toga picta or painted toga, which was dyed solid purple with a golden stripe. The purple dye was really expensive to make. Later, this type of toga was used exclusively by emperors. In the time of the Republic, it marked you out as close to gods and kings. Your parade would then wind through the narrow streets of Rome. Everyone in the city would turn out to see you, thronging the streets, crowding the rooftops, and hanging out of windows, throwing flower petals, burning incest, bearing breasts, ancient world confetti. It was all for you. You were a rock star, and everybody treated you like one. They'd throw their bras, they'd have their lighters going. It was amazing. 
So first would come your defeated enemy, generals, kings, and leaders from the other side that you'd captured in battle and didn't kill for this particular purpose, and their families would be walking in chains. And this might include women and children. Then would come the loot. Gold and silver, statues, furniture, money, and anything of value that your army stripped from the vanquished people. Then would come the senators and magistrates of Rome, walking on foot, your bodyguards, and then you, the glorious conquering general, riding a chariot drawn by horses. In your full triumphal regalia, your face painted red, a slave would ride in your chariot behind you, whispering in your ear, Remember, you are mortal. Because after all this, presumably you need reminding. So after that comes your army, all decked out in their battle gear, singing rowdy songs at your expense. Caesar's legions used to sing a song about how the citizens of Rome should lock up their wives because, quote, here comes the bald adulterer. I love how they were singing about Caesar's magic D and his triumph. (laughs) Yes! It's like... It's like they knew exactly what he was and they were not afraid to tell the world. (laughs) Oh, they knew. Everyone knew about the Magic D. Last would come two pure white oxen with gilded horns and flowers around their necks destined for sacrifice at the feet of the statue of Jupiter because it sucks to be a pure white ox in ancient Rome. This parade would wind its way through the streets of Rome. On the way, you'd stop at the Mamertine prison to drop off your war prisoners. These would usually be strangled, sometimes down in the horrible hole and sometimes in front of the whole populace. Then you'd make your way to the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill, where you'd sacrifice to the god. There might also be several days of games and feasts. Frequently, large triumphal arches, theaters, and other ornate buildings were raised to commemorate the occasion. Generals were supposed to behave with humility and dignity during their own triumphs. In fact, the whole time, the Senate would be watching you very, very carefully to make sure that you didn't exhibit the signs of wanting to be a king for more than a day. But make no mistake, a triumph was the pinnacle of a general's career. Pompey Shark, the Great, incidentally, had three. That's how much of a golden boy he was. And Caesar was eating his heart out the whole time. Absolutely. Caesar needed this triumph because if he doesn't get it, he's three behind. He's got to close that gap. He's already way behind Alexander the Great and way behind Pompey Shark the Great. And he just, he needs a triumph. He's desperate for a triumph. And let's be honest... He's done with quarter-life crisis and moving into midlife crisis territory. Pompey's last triumph was granted in 61 BC after finally defeating Mithridates. It had taken two whole days for Pompey's triumph to wind through the streets. The loot on display included 75 million silver drachmae, more than the entire tax revenue of the Republic for a year. A solid gold statue of Mithridates, 12 feet tall, and enough golden gem-encrusted vessels to fill nine display cabinets and to make my little magpie heart sing. Jen's in, like, the audience of the triumph going, whoa! (laughs) And we're not done. There was also a gaming board, three feet by four feet, made of two types of precious stones. On this board was a solid gold moon weighing 30 pounds, because what else are you going to put on your giant gaming board? And we're still not done. There were also 33 pearl-adorned crowns. Oh, my heart. A bust of Pompey made entirely of pearls, which... How? Why did Mithridates have a bust of Pompey in his house made of pearls? You have to ask yourself this. And this was a bust, presumably, with his hair blowing back in the wind. Yeah, that's how you know it's Pompey Shark. (laughs) Because he's in a wind tunnel. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 
And bizarrely, this is a tad hard to picture, a, quote, square mountain of gold with stags upon it, lions, and all kinds of fruit surrounded with a vine of gold. And Jenny, you might have to resuscitate me. She's having a little magpie freak out right now. I'm a little concerned. (laughs) So that's the sense of the scale and self-aggrandizement of a triumph. If you had an ancestor who'd earned one, that would be a massive prestige boost to your family. Caesar wanted one. He was thirsty for one. It would have taken his career to the next level and would have helped him get on his seven-point step to be Caesar the Great. Right, Caesar Shark the Great. And there was only one problem. Caesar was also up for consulship that year. And to be elected consul, you had to present yourself before the Senate as a private citizen, risking your creditors. And that was a problem for Caesar for other reasons, too. Remember that rule about how generals couldn't enter the city until it was time for their triumph because it gave everyone extremely unpleasant Sulla flashbacks? Caesar couldn't both enter the city as a private citizen and get his triumph as a conquering general. It was one or the other. He tried to have both. He sent a request asking the Senate to let him stand for the consulship in absentia. The Senate nixed this, so Caesar made a decision, sacrifice his triumph and stand for consul. It was a painful decision, but you can see why. He sacrificed a self-aggrandizing grandstand for the chance at real power. Caesar left his army outside the city and entered as a private citizen to stand for consul, and the Senate was livid. By this time, Caesar had made a lot of enemies, especially among the traditionalists like Cato and Cicero. He had done a lot to deliberately piss off the Sullen regime in the past decade or so. Here's a fun example of that. At one point, I think during his aedileship in 65 BC, this would have been five or six years ago, since bringing out the images of Marius at his aunt's funeral had gone so well, Caesar took that stunt a step further. He commissioned more images of Marius and statues of the victories bearing trophies, and he had them set up all over the capital in the middle of the night. People woke up in the morning to find these golden glittery statues bearing inscriptions celebrating Marius's victories all over the capital. It was like Christmas morning for the downtrodden Marian supporters and magpies of the world, as well as a giant FU to the sullen regime. The citizens lost it, and so did the magpies. Janet always has to make sure to mention the um, impact on the magpie contingent. Marius's underground supporters gathered in the capital, moved to tears and wildly applauding. And of course, Caesar just slapped his sunscreen in and basked in the glow of it all. Caesar wasn't just annoying to the traditionalists, he was dangerous. People were willing to riot in the streets for him, and his troops loved him enough to declare him Imperator. Imperator! Imperator! <laughs> We're ridiculous. <laughs> that made the conservative factions twitchy. They didn't like Caesar's agenda, and they didn't like the kind of loyalty he inspired in angry mobs and armies, and they didn't like the way he wore his toga, and they didn't like his face. I mean, can you blame them about the <laughs> loyalty in angry mobs and armies? I mean, that is slightly terrifying. They do have a point there. But his toga, I mean, that's not fair. Or his face. He can't help that. Caesar can't help his face, you guys. We don't blame you for being upset about the angry mobs. We'd also be upset about the angry mobs. So they did everything they could to stop him. And they probably believed they were on the side of right here. I feel like that's one key thing about Caesar's story is that it's so often presented as he's the good guy and he's on the side of the common man. And that isn't how everybody saw it. And sometimes they had a point. Caesar definitely was a populist and he definitely spoke up for the desires of the retired troops, but he also wanted to be king. Everything he was doing was about him being in charge. You could argue that his populist platform was very calculating. 
It was to elevate him and to use the power of his supporters to make other people afraid of him. Right. So anyway, the conservative factions of the Senate did everything they could to stop Caesar from gaining more power and from standing as consul. And once it was clear that they couldn't stop him, they tried to hamstring him. Caesar fought back. The minute he hit Rome, he negotiated a peace between Crassus and Pompey, the two big power movers in Roman politics. And I cannot express how big a feat that was just to get these two in the same room without killing each other. But Caesar was actually uniquely placed to do it. I mean, Crassus completely believed that he was in his pocket because Caesar owed him literally everything. And Pompey, well, they had something in common. They were both great military minds. And one thing you notice about looking at Pompey's career is that he was a really good general and he was likable, but he wasn't that politically adept. Like he kept making these missteps and Caesar was politically adept. So Pompey needed Caesar too. Caesar had something that they both needed. Caesar somehow got these two to unite behind him. The three men agreed to make no moves that did not benefit the other two and to back each other in all things. This was the first triumvirate. Caesar solidified the agreement by marrying his daughter Julia to Pompey, who was suddenly single after divorcing his previous wife, Muncia, for infidelity with guess who? No, not Caesar. Shocker. Who wasn't Caesar's? <laughs> who wasn't getting some of that magic D back then? Everyone was getting some of it. <laughs> Everyone who wanted some got some. <laughs> And Caesar's daughter, Julia, would have been about 17, and Pompey was 47. Six years older than her own dad. Yes, she's marrying someone older than her own dad. And Pompey fell wildly, ridiculously, passionately in love with Julia, and he was ridiculed for it. And apparently, despite the age difference, Julia loved him back, and this was a happy marriage. It looks really problematic to us today, but... According to the ancient sources, at least, they were happily married. Yeah, which is slightly astonishing. Kind of mind-blowing, but that's what it says. Meanwhile, Caesar married a teenager named Calpurnia. She was 16 and he was 41. This whole triumvirate was sealed with a round of marriage to teenagers. Which is just awful. Very disturbing. Calpurnia was known to be shy and retiring, not a political animal at all. And Caesar kept on seeing Servilia after he was married to Calpurnia. Every consul needs a co-consul. Caesar wanted to run jointly with a rich guy named Lucius L Lucius? Lucius Lucius? It actually does, if you look at it quickly, look like Luscious Lucius. <laughs> I think you guys have been listening long enough and you want to run with it, so that's what we're going to call him. And Luscious Lucius was <laughs> politically hands-off. Pretty much a walking ATM machine who would have given Caesar carte blanche. But the Sullen traditionalists laid out heavy bribes to make sure that it was a guy named Bibulus sharing the consulship with Caesar instead. Caesar had worked with Bibulus before. They'd served together as aediles five years ago, overseeing public festivals and buildings. Bibulus was about as charismatic as vanilla pudding. Oh, that's unfair to vanilla pudding. I mean, I don't like vanilla pudding, but some people do. Well, sure. I mean, vanilla pudding is delicious, but it's not known for its riveting speeches, is all I'm saying. Well, that's fair enough, but also vanilla pudding is not known to be something that can make a speech. Bibulus was also known as not being someone, someone who could make a speech. <laughs> Funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> I set that up for you. <laughs> you could argue whether vanilla pudding was better at speech making than Bibulus. He was good at meme making, though. We're going to get to that. While they were both aediles, Bibulus split the cost for all the lavish public festivals and restoration projects, but Caesar took all the credit. Bibulus was kind of a good sport about this. He joked that he'd suffered the same fate as Pollux at the Temple of Castor in Pollux. Everyone just called it the Temple of Castor. But Bibulus wasn't joking around now. He was there to be a check on Caesar's power, to stop him at every turn. And this 
did not work out so well. One of Caesar's first acts as consul was a favor to Pompey. He put forth a totally routine bill to redistribute some land to Pompey's soldiers who'd been waiting for their resettlement package for several years. Bibulus opposed this bill passionately, staging a walkout, insulting the soldiers who would have benefited from the bill, and even trying to prevent the vote by declaring that he'd seen ill omens that prevented the Senate from gathering, and Caesar totally ignored this. Because Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus, so he had the authority to. This could cause a massive riot. You don't want that really angry at you. Like, this is not a good plan, Bibulus. Yeah, Bibulus is not looking at the arc of history here when it comes to the armies and how they interacted with the leadership of ancient Rome. Yeah. Finally, Bibulus stormed up the steps of the Temple of Castor. Sorry, the Temple of Castor and Pollux to protest the bill. But Pompey had flooded the city with his soldiers to intimidate the opposition. These soldiers were rightly pissed off, belligerent, and looking for a fight. Bibulus was the perfect target. Yeah, because he picked on them earlier. Well, yeah, and they've been waiting ages for this resettlement package. They'd done their duty. This is deeply unfair. And he was basically doing it because his job was just to trip up Caesar at every turn. He was just blocking him to block him. Yeah, and he had, was not taking any consideration for the fact that these were people's lives and livelihoods that he was really impacting and people who had served their country. Like, not okay. Sorry, I get really riled up about that. Anyway, an angry mob roughed Bibulus up, pushed him to the ground, and dumped a bucket of manure on him. Bibulus staggered to his feet and screamed at the crowd to kill him and end his humiliation. Just kill me! I'm stinky and this is awful and you won't let me do my vote and I hate you and I just want to go home! Just kill me already and make it end! And they may have actually just gone ahead and done that, except his friends persuaded him to calm down, take refuge in the nearby temple, take a deep breath, manure can be washed off, this is not the end of your political career, it's all right. Take a breath, put things in perspective. In five years, is anyone going to care? Exactly. And if they're not going to care, then you shouldn't care right now. Caesar's land distribution measure passed, and Bibulus hid out in his house for the rest of his consulship, from which he issued declarations of bad omens and wrote scathing pamphlets denouncing Caesar. He had a Tumblr account that was dedicated to just negative Caesar memes. Yeah, or an Instagram account that was just like... (laughs) Dispatches from from being a refugee of Caesar in your own home. And you know what? (laughs) That's one way to pass a year, Bibulus. Thing is, everyone laughed at him. At this time, yearly days were referred to by the two people holding the consulship at that time. It was considered the height of hilarity to date things in the consulship of Julius and Caesar rather than Bibulus and Caesar. Ouch! (laughs) Sick burn! With Pompey and Crassus at his back, there was nothing Caesar couldn't strong-arm the Senate into. Pompey would flood the city with his soldiers to intimidate Caesar's enemies, and Crassus made sure the bribes got paid. The situation got so bad that many senators left town. When Caesar looked around one time and remarked, huh, why is the Senate house so empty? (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? One elderly senator straight up told Caesar that they'd all fled town because they were terrified of his armed followers. If you're getting unpleasant solo flashbacks right now, you're not alone. Basically, all of Rome is with you. Toward the end of Caesar's year in office, the political mood started to turn. Caesar faced fierce political opposition, and not always just from the traditionalists. Now, even the angry mob faction was kind of 50-50 on Caesar. Some were still on his side, but others saw a dictatorship waiting to happen, or one that maybe already had. Meanwhile, 
Fibulus stayed in hiding, announcing his bad omens to the Pontifex Maximus, because that's going to work well for you, and releasing his pamphlet. And these started to be a thing. Crowds of people would gather in the forum and cackle with glee at the increasingly scandalous insults. And he was getting all the likes. He was going viral. It was happening for him. Caesar's old affair with Nicomedes was dredged up. Fibulus called him the Queen of Bithynia. Caesar as the Queen of Bithynia is just, he should have just leaned right into that. I know. Oh. Anyway, moving on, Pompey and Crassus were targets too. Pompey once gave a speech denying the accusations in Bibulus's pamphlets, which only made people snicker behind his back. Pompey, dispatched from the 21st century, don't feed the trolls. Exactly. Anyway, a plot to assassinate Pompey was uncovered and a young aristocrat was executed for it. So by the end of Caesar's very eventful consulate, once again, Rome was looking extremely hot for him and he was looking to skip town. He'd made a lot of political enemies. Comparisons with Sulla were starting to happen and that made people stabby. See, Caesar wanted comparisons with Alexander the Great. What he was getting was comparisons with Sulla. Nobody wants to remind people of Sulla. A lot of people were just waiting for his consulship to end so they could sue him for offense against the state, not to mention he was eyeballs deep in debt to Crassus. Caesar, at the end of his consulate, had some serious needs. These were, number one, another position, quick, immunity from prosecution for, say, three to five years, enough time for all his abuses of government to blow over. Number two, money. Because student loan debt cannot be discharged by bankruptcy, and neither can your debts to Daddy Shark Crassus. Right, you were not going to get away with not paying him back. Number three, a military victory so big and so glorious that it would overshadow Pompey Shark the Great, Rome's military golden boy, and burnish up Caesar's reputation back home and make everyone start comparing him to Alexander the Great, finally. Because much like Alaric, who just wanted to be senior advertising director of the Goths, all Caesar wanted was to be Caesar the Great. The Senate couldn't stop Caesar from picking his own next move. The Senate tried to assign him governorship over, quote, the woods and pastures of Italy, which literally meant they wanted to put him out to pasture. Yeah, it was a junk governorship. It was like, you get to be governor of, um, I don't know, the median strip in the highway. <laughs> exactly. And Caesar just went ahead and ignored this, and he picked his own next assignment. And there was one region Caesar could be governor of that would fulfill all of his needs governorship of Gaul. So at this time, the Roman Republic had a big territory in what was now Spain. They called it Hispania. Connecting that territory with the rest of the Republic was a thin stretch of Roman territory running along the bottom of France. The Romans called this area Transalpine Gaul. To the north of that, though, was basically Free Gaul, or most of France today, which at the time was unconquered territory, or, as Caesar would see it, fair game. Remember, Caesar didn't like to plunder his own provinces. He preferred to beat up on neighboring tribes instead. The optics were better. The free Gaul had vast stretches of unconquered territory ripe for the plundering. If he could conquer Gaul, Caesar could enrich himself massively, pay off his creditors, and return to Rome a hero. He'd have more money than Crassus and a bigger army than Pompey. If he played this right, he'd be invulnerable when he got back to Rome, the next best thing to a god. If he played it wrong, assuming he survived, his creditors and political enemies would rip him to pieces. So he just couldn't play it wrong. It was win or die. With this in mind, Caesar turned his eyes toward Gaul. And that's it for this week. Join us in two weeks for the next episode in this series. And in the meantime, come and find us on social, on Twitter, at AncientHistFan, and on Instagram and Facebook, at AncientHistoryFangirl. 
And if you'd like to support the podcast, we'd love it if you checked out our Patreon at Patreon slash Ancient History Fangirl. But if you'd rather not get locked into a monthly thing, you can also check out our Ko-Fi. There you can kick us a few bucks if you like the podcast and you want to support us. And it means the world to us. It really does. And if you like what we do, feel free to leave a review or tell a friend. We're still building up our audience, so every bit helps. And seeing those reviews or feedback on our website or comments on our posts, they really just make it so worthwhile. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>